What you are about to hear is an interview I conducted with Kim Holmes in conjunction with the release of his new book, The Closing of the Liberal Mind. Mr. Holmes is a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State and currently a distinguished fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Mr. Holmes and I spoke from Encounter Books' offices in New York City. All background noises are courtesy of Mayor de Blasio. Without further ado, here's our discussion. Kim, as we both know, ideas have consequences. Your book is all about ideas, both the good and the bad throughout history. I want to talk about the practical implications of those ideas and the theoretical ones as well. But let's start right here, given where we are today. How much did the elections of 2008, 2012, and this current presidential election illustrate the triumph of illiberalism over liberalism as classically defined? And I should preface it by saying your book is titled The Closing of the Liberal Mind. Well, I think the liberal mind, uh, as I describe it in my book, has been closing for a number of years, even a number of decades, uh, particularly in the universities, uh, in the popular culture. Uh, you, you're seeing more and more instances where people who describe themselves as progressive liberals are trying to use uh, public shaming rituals and even coercive uh, efforts uh, through the law and the courts uh, to shut down dissent and opposing points of view. So this has been going on for a long time. Uh, but I do uh, believe, and I also argue in the book, uh, that the process accelerated under President Barack Obama uh, because uh, he is a, a man of the, definitely the progressive left, what I call the postmodern left, uh, which uh, really believes uh, that the uh, traditional constitutional order, traditional values, even about the family, uh, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the society uh, that uh, had evolved over centuries and had made America a great place uh, for Americans and even for other people in the world, he believed that that, that America was outdated uh, and he believed that it was inherently flawed. And so he wanted to transform it. Uh, he was very open about it uh, and he has uh, endeavored in every way to do that. Uh, uh, but, I, but in doing so, uh, he has moved over into what I call uh, illiberalism, that is the use of coercion and even uh, abuse uh, to uh, get his way. Uh, you see it uh, not just in the most obvious, like the IRS targeting political opponents, uh, you see it in his abuse of executive orders and executive action to consciously get around the Congress and the Constitution. You see it uh, with his uh, the use of the Justice Department uh, to go after uh, the politicized investigations of police departments, uh, political jurisdictions, uh, and frankly, even individuals in some cases. Uh, there's even uh, the case of going after some nuns, for example, who were protesting uh, the uh, Obamacare mandate. Uh, so they've been very, very uh, illiberal in their use of regulations and the law to go after their opponents and to get their way. Uh, so uh, even though it has been going on for a while, it definitely accelerated you talk about basically, in effect, uh, Melanie Phillips has, has spoken of this, the world being turned on its head. And that's in effect what progressivism is when you get down to it. It's justice turning into injustice. It's the victim turning into the victimizer. And as your book speaks to, it's liberalism turning into illiberalism. Explain a little bit, and you walk through this in your book in some detail, how we went from a natural law tradition to historicism, Hegelianism, pragmatism, scientific thought, 
progressivism and then ultimately the postmodern left, as you term it. Yeah, it's a long story, over 250 years. I'll try to do it justice as, uh, as, I, as I can. If you start out with the principles of the founding, uh, the founding of the American Republic, it's roughly a classic liberal view of the world. That rights are individually owned. Uh, the government exists to protect those rights. My rights uh, as an individual only go, though, as far as me not offending or imposing on your rights. Uh, private virtue was very important. It was, it was believed that you had to be uh, a moral person. Uh, this was the classic liberal view of the world. Uh, in the end of the 19th century, with the rise of industrialization uh, and, uh, and the like in the large cities that happened uh, in America, we had, of course, the progressive movement uh, with Herbert Crawley, Woodrow Wilson, uh, and even Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who uh, challenged this original classic uh, liberal view. Uh, they thought it was outdated. They didn't like individualism, they believed in a community, and they believed that the state should enforce the new values of the community, and they introduced the idea, the nascent idea of the welfare state that, of course, uh, was developed by uh, FDR and, and, and particularly uh, Lyndon Johnson. Then you had the New Left in the 60s, uh, which imported uh, ideas of cultural revolution uh, from Europe, uh, primarily the Frankfurt School, of neo-Marxism, which was a cultural Marxist view, uh, where they would uh, was fused with not only the old Marxist categories of revolution against capitalism, but it was fused with Freudianism, the idea that uh, sexual politics uh, and uh, the release of the individual through a sexual experimentation was the way to overturn the old traditional order, not only of capitalism, but of religion and and that gave rise to this big explosion of the youth movements in the 60s and the radicalization of the student movement. And many of these people became professors, and they uh, introduced ideas of feminism uh, and identity politics, certainly into the university curriculum. Uh, they marched through the institutions. They went largely dormant through the Reagan and Bush eras. But they were always there, and they were always teaching our children, even when President Reagan and uh, President Bush were in the White House. Uh, so this marching through the institutions has been quite successful, uh, and, and, it's, and it's all the institutions now. It's not just the university. It's certainly Hollywood. Uh, it's uh, increasingly the corporate boardrooms. You know, if you look at Apple, uh, PayPal, Amazon, uh, Starbucks, all these big corporations are thoroughly uh, uh, progressive left in the culture. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, the, the final phase in transformation of liberalism. Uh, it's what I call the postmodern left, and that's happened in the last 30 years. Uh, and uh, it, it happened, the most day-to-day -day manifestation of what I mean by the postmodern left, it's mainly cultural. Uh, it's the belief uh, that morality is completely relative, it's only individually defined, uh, in philosophy that's called ethical relativism, but it's also true about reality. It's highly subjective, uh, and it, there is no truth, no physical reality. It's only a matter of interpretation, epistemic, or relativism. Uh, and uh, the belief that this uh, relativism um, is manifested in the postmodern left, mainly in identity politics, uh, where a person's identity is, whether it's sexual or transgender or about gay marriage or whatever the issue is, it is thoroughly the property of the individual and only they have a right to say who they are, and you, though, this is where the issue of equality comes in, I mean, everybody else, 
must conform to that individual point of view. So on the one hand, it's radically individualistic. That's what makes it, that's postmodern. And, but on the other hand, it's the old new left agenda, uh, which is radical egalitarianism, that's defining this new radical individualism as, as a new kind of equality. So if I don't conform or agree to a person's belief that same-sex marriage is the same thing as traditional marriage, or if I don't believe and accept, I don't mean tolerate, I mean accept the fact that a, that a man who thinks he's a woman, a, tra a transgender man is a woman, I am now out of step with the new morality. And I don't just offend that one person's basic rights according to them, I'm also somehow denying that class of people their equality. That in a nutshell is the postmodern left. It's very slippery, it's very confusing. And for conservatives who are raised in the natural law tradition or even just the old-fashioned progressivism, all the categories of individual versus society, authority versus freedom, is turned completely inside out. And if you don't know what it is that they're doing and saying, it's so easy to get confused. And if you get confused, next thing you know, you're using their language. For example, it's about civil rights, it's about discrimination, it's about their rights, and you are denying them their rights, and you have no right to your opinion. And so tolerance becomes really uh, a gateway for intolerance, because if you don't accept their point of view in the public square, you're the one that's intolerant, and they have a right to be intolerant towards you. Uh, and it's this kind of confusing situation, which I think, uh, although philosophically it's incoherent, but politically it is powerful because it's slippery, uh, it's, you can adapt it to anything, uh, and, uh, and, and also it's based upon a, a fraudulent claim. The fraudulent claim is that really they're just making a relativistic position. You know, all morality is gone, you know, my morality is good as yours, but that's not what they really are arguing. They're saying my morality is right and yours is wrong, mine's normal now, and yours is abnormal. So it's based upon a fraud, the fraudulent claim. But in the popular culture, that fraudulent claim is completely not missing. It's not seen. It's not known. And that's why I wrote the book, The Closing of the Liberal Mind, was to expose this fraud. As the founders spoke to, a free society can't exist without morality. And what you just spoke to, I think, is, is maybe the most critical point of all, that these folks are moral relativists, but they believe that their morality is the right morality. Their morality, which says anything goes, and my, whatever I say is moral, is moral. So in effect, they are trying to overturn the moral order, thus the cultural order, and ultimately the political order. So I have to ask, in thinking through the implications of that, and I was thinking about this as I was reading the book, when we talk about winning the Cold War in the conventional sense of the Soviet Union collapse, no one would deny that. From an ideological perspective, did we win that war? Hmm. Uh, we won the old war. The Cold War, the, the old battle against Marxism and communism and the systems of communism. Uh, I would argue that you've got to make a distinction between the ideology of what Marxism stood for and the actual power of the Soviet Union. The power of the Soviet Union uh, persisted a lot longer than the credibility of old-fashioned Marxist communism. And the new left uh, in Europe uh, and the socialists of the 60s and the 70s, uh, they didn't want to be uh, associated with that kind of communism, so they invented uh, a new kind of socialism, a new left, that what I've been talking about. Mainly a, uh, a sort of cultural 
Marxism uh, combined with a sort of advanced uh, welfare state socialism uh, that was more or less democratic in the sense that you that you uh, respected elections. So it wasn't totalitarian in the sense of the Soviet Union then. So, so when the Soviet Union collapsed and, uh, in the early 90s, in some ways we had already won the ideological war uh, against the old communism, which was a 19th century phenomenon. And so there was an historical lag. And I think many conservatives still think they're fighting the old battles, but they're not. Uh, we have to realize who our opponents are. Uh, they left that worldview behind a long time ago. And the essence of it being a postmodern leftist is to have no system, no logic that you can tear apart, no fancy dialectics and historical, uh, grim historical determinism that you can get at philosophically. Uh, you just want to go off and, and make everything about individual choice and tolerance and, uh, and the like. And, uh, and yet, uh, as a political and intellectual weapon of deconstructionism, which was what it was, uh, you could do a lot of dismantling. As a matter of fact, that is where the, most of the progressive left has been focusing its efforts over the last 40, 50 years. And I think a lot of conservatives uh, have, been, have been caught by fighting their own battle. They need to fight this new battle. They need to go engage in the culture and take head on some of the ideas that are being used to justify this new approach. As you speak to, this is a battle. It's a multi-front battle, which one side is heavily engaged in, and as you mentioned, has been engaged in for 50 years. And we already had to deal with the effects of Woodrow Wilson progressivism, let alone the postmodern left, more adroitly, I would say, going after the culture rather than merely focusing on the political institutions. One of the more pernicious areas that you speak to in terms of where the postmodern left causes real lasting damage is in the area of the law. I explain how the law has been warped to basically become a weapon rather than something that provides justice and truth. Well, in history, if you, uh, if you command control of the public mind, the law will follow. Uh, and, and so the more advances that the postmodern left and progressives uh, have made over the last 40, 50 years in the culture, uh, they've been looking for openings uh, to go beyond just trying to convince me through, or you or me through a public debate, but actually uh, steal the deal uh, and make my expression of my opinions uh, illegal, in some cases criminalize them. Uh, and uh, you know, authoritarian regimes have been, totalitarian regimes have been doing this for many, many, many years. Uh, but it's now happening in uh, a few areas. Uh, the most obvious one is the area of hate speech. Uh, hate speech was was uh, developed by uh, a legal theorist, people like Catherine McKinnon uh, and others, who uh, 25 or 30 years ago uh, introduced the idea in the law that uh, pornography, for example, was a kind of sexual discrimination against women. And it was a very clever tactic because conservatives don't like pornography either. Uh, and uh, but they introduced the idea. Therefore, if you want to control pornography, though, you can expand the definition of what that means, and then you get into the area of uh, a kind of a radical feminist view uh, that if you happen to express other kinds of opinions that a feminist believes is offensive, not just pornography, but other kinds, uh, then that be can become a, something that you can control through the law. 
Then it got expanded as multiculturalism uh, uh, spread uh, to all kinds of minority groups. And so not just women, but uh, blacks, uh, any other kind of racial minorities, and then increasingly so-called sexual minorities, people's sexual preferences and the like, they all got put in the same uh, area of protection. And so the theories were developed through the law that if you express uh, any kind of uh, disagreement or criticism of these groups, uh, you are doing so because you hate them, and therefore uh, you, the, the speech can be uh, curtailed. The point I make in the book is, is that uh, what was happened is, is that the belief in a new kind of equality was used to curtail freedom of speech. Freedom of speech had been a classic liberal virtue, at least on the surface, even back in 1964, the rise of the free speech movement in Berkeley, uh, the right to dissent, it was called the free speech movement. Uh, even the progressives after World War I believed in dissent and freedom of speech. But my point is, is that uh, the postmodern left started basically jettisoning free speech in the name of equality uh, for these new identity groups. And that was the wedge in which now there are a lot of people on the postmodern left, Stanley Fish, for example, who believe free speech is a complete fiction. It doesn't exist. Everything is a social construct. And so if it doesn't exist, then there's no ethical value to it, and therefore it can be regulated by the law. And uh, that is what we're dealing with, because the average American is just thinking, well, I don't want to be offensive to somebody, so maybe I really should tolerate somebody else's losing their freedom of speech, so long as nobody touches mine. Uh, and that's the way it was working, because it was going after people uh, and groups that were unpopular with the American public. Uh, and so if they denied them their freedom of speech, it wasn't a big issue. Uh, the saving graces, Supreme Court has had no use for this. The Supreme Court has defended freedom of speech in the First Amendment fairly consistently. And so the hate speech ideology so far has not entered the Supreme Court. What happens if you get, for example, Hillary Clinton elected, and you get uh, a new Supreme Court Justice, who believes in this stuff, and, and you already get, have an attorney general who's already, there. You already have an attorney right. general. She believes very much in hate speech. At that point, the uh, uh, you, you, you shift. You could have a, a fundamental uh, shift to the paradigm in favor of the Supreme Court making hate speech the law. I think it's worth noting also that Hillary Clinton, in particular, supported at the UN a human rights um, resolution, which basically called for. Uh, punishing anti-Islamophobic speech in effect, which is de facto and may end up potentially de jour enforcement of Islamic blasphemy laws in the West. So right. that speaks to how pernicious it is. That's right. All you have to do in a hate speech or ideology is, is maneuver your cause into a protected minority position. Once you're there, then you can uh, mobilize the whole ideology to protect yourself, no matter how crazy it is. Uh, you know, most most uh, secular liberals, you know, would not have the time of day for radical or for Islamic uh, views of uh, of marriage and sexual relations and the like, and so they just compartmentalize it off because that's they know that's no threat to them. Number one, because they're not a majority, but number two, uh, they know that uh, that they are a minority inside the larger American. Culture and they know what conservatives fear and believe, and also they and they, uh, to be very honest, they also uh, believe that it's a good counterweight to uh, to the Christians, 
uh, in, society, in American society. So if you get in that position, you know, you can get away with an awful lot, uh, even if it's completely philosophically and morally incoherent. You write that in practice, and I quote, identity and equality work against each other in your book. I think that would be mind-blowing to most college and postgraduate students today. Explain that. Uh, in practice, it doesn't. Obviously, in practice, uh, they, they have been fused and and politically, uh, it's been quite successful for the average college student to see them to be two sides of the same coin. I'm just saying uh, it's philosophically incoherent. Uh, it's incoherent in, in the sense that if the ultimate arbiter of truth and morality is what the individual says it is, and if you derive in the society or in the civil society, you derive your rights as an individual, uh, solely from your membership in a group, in a gender, in a certain race. And it doesn't matter what you do as an individual, whether you discriminate against somebody or not as an individual, or whether you not are discriminated against uh, as an individual. Uh, your entire identity, uh, first of all, is, 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 is individually owned, and yet it's only expressed and justified as a matter of equality by being a member of the group. And then the group becomes the thing uh, that you have to protect in the cause of equality. But you can see these are logically inconsistent ideas. The, the idea of equality uh, in the classic liberal idea was is that all individuals had their rights, uh, whether it's from natural law or from God, uh, as individuals. And so we had, we, we had possession of our rights because we had something in common with everybody. Uh, we were human beings and that had not been applied to blacks during slavery and that was the great injustice but once they were freed and once civil rights recognized them it was perfectly in sync with the classic liberal view that uh, blacks were no different than white people and they're individuals they derive their rights from being human beings. Uh, in multiculturalism and identity politics uh, it's, it's, it's what you do differently and how you're different from somebody else. If you have a different color of skin or you have different sexual practices, that is what you supposedly have that gives you your special protection as a right. Uh, and that, as a matter of equality, must be protected. Uh, but you realize instantly that it's not based upon anything common. Uh, and you actually have to change the definition of things in order to pretend they're the same. After all, if if gay marriage was traditional marriage, then you wouldn't have to change the law. Obviously, it's not the same thing, and so it's not about equality. It's about changing the definition of something for everybody else in order to act as if what they have is the same. Uh, and so when you start thinking through the claims logically, uh, it becomes philosophically incoherent. You pull out a, a very fundamental insight that I think sort of encapsulates all that we're speaking about and what your book speaks to, and you bring up a quote in your book from Yuval Levin of National Affairs who speaks about progressives today effectively imposing their religion by means of the state. That is, secular humanism, the secular humanist faith on the body politic. What are the ramifications of that? Uh, the ramifications is not only the complete destruction of the American constitutional order, 
uh, which is based upon the freedom of civil society, respect for individual rights, checks and balances in the government and the rule of law, because you cannot have uh, the imposition of any one ideology, uh, religious or secular, uh, as a, an official ideology, and have all those things preserved. Uh, that's what made us different from the European revolutionary movements. The American Revolution was a classic liberal revolution. It wasn't a French Revolution. It wasn't uh, an ideology of liberté. It was an ideology of freedom. It wasn't an ideology of virtue with a capital V that's going to be discovered uh, uh, by a philosopher like Rousseau and imposed on the entire society. And if you happen to disagree, you, you might find yourself uh, with your neck under a guillotine. That's the way they practiced it over there. And that, and that revolution was taken over into the Bolshevik Revolution. That's the European revolutionary uh, tradition. Uh, and, uh, you know, the French sort of toned it down with their kind of secularism today. And, you know, they're not, they're not anti-democratic in that sense. But uh, it, it, it still causes uh, attention even in France to this day. But the point is, is that if you're going to have an official ideology and you're going to treat it like a religion, and it's a moral and political equivalent of your religion, which means you, it, it, uh, you have no room for disagreement, uh, then people's rights are going to be uh, denied. And you're going to have more authoritarian measures. Uh, there's just no way around it. So the final question then naturally is, I mentioned before, you can go back to Woodrow Wilson and you can say that's the, the time period where we started to go in this direction. Some people might point to earlier, some people might point to FDR and then LBJ and the like. But bottom line is, we're at least 50 years and maybe 100 years behind and we're in a battle that, as you've spoken to and elucidated in this book, is on every single aspect of our society. Given the constraints that we have and the conditions today, how do we reverse it? How do we win, ultimately? Does it start with taking back the language? Is it the institutions? How do you do it? Uh, first thing you do is read my book. Supposing you have a liberal mind and understand what you're up against. Uh, understand the problem. Uh, and, and, and stop shadow boxing. Uh, stop believing that Herbert Crowley and Woodrow Wilson is our main enemies. Uh, frankly, stop believing even that Karl Marx is our main enemy. Uh, the, 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 the opponent today is much more sophisticated, much more slippery. you got to know, you can't defeat somebody if you don't know who, who your enemy is. Uh, and uh, I think that that needs to be clarified. Uh, the second thing is start taking ideas seriously and don't look upon ideas just exclusively as instruments. Marketing instruments or political instruments to get power or something like that. The great genius of the postmodern left is they do both. They actually take ideas seriously, at least uh, in, the, in the university, to the point where they write these large tomes and explain them. But they also are masters of, of the instrumental idea, of, of turning them into useful politics. Uh, we, we conservatives all, sometimes think that we can just do one, the instrumentality without the form. I don't think William F. Buckley Jr. thought that, but he's no longer with us. And of course, you have great institutions like Encounter Books that are committed uh, to dealing with serious ideas. But not all the conservatives are there yet. Uh, and the third is you've got to do something about uh, taking back the American University. Uh, and if you do that, I think the education system would follow. Uh, but, if you, uh, but this means uh, insisting on more intellectual and ideological diversity in our universities. And uh, even attaching funding requirements to that. 
uh, you know, state legislatures are in, tar in charge of the funding of these state universities and you know, do nothing about how monolithic these universities are, how intellectual conformity outside the science and engineering departments is stifling. And uh, so wh why should we be su surprised at these students uh, that engage in these shenanigans and these uh, antics uh, that are almost uh, akin to what you would find in a university under Mount Saitung? Uh, why are we surprised they're acting that way? Uh, it's because they're acting out of what they're taught. They're acting out what they were taught in, uh, you know, their queer theory uh, course that they took. That's their words, not mine. Uh, and, uh, you know, whatever issue on transgenderism uh, that, that they've just studied, that stuff has been developed in the universities. Uh, and yet, try to find a good course on the history of natural law. Try to find a course on John Locke these days. Uh, trying to we can find plenty of courses on Hegel and Marx and all of that. Try to find a, a, a course on Adam Smith in free, free market economics. The uh, uh, last thing I'll say about this is that I had a real eye opener one time when I was Assistant Secretary of State for George W. Bush. I was up at the United Nations headquarters here in New York. And I was trying to put together a, a, a luncheon of all the countries, the ambassadors from all the countries that scored well on the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom. There were about 30 of them. And they were, these were countries with free economies, capitalist economies. And so they were practicing what Adam Smith believed. So I brought them all together and I said, why don't we coordinate our policies at the UN? And there was this silence around the world. Nobody wanted to touch the other. Finally, after the lunch was over, one of the ambassadors came up to me and said, you know, the problem is, is that we don't want to bring attention to this. We think we're doing really well. And the problem is, is that if you talk about economic freedom, that's too ideological. So even the people who believed it were censoring themselves. And why do conservatives censor themselves? Why do they do that? It's because they are confused. Uh, they don't want to be criticized by majority culture, but you've got to have courage and the only way you're going to have courage is have some faith in yourself and the only way you're going to have faith in yourself is to learn what you believe in uh, and believe in, to, believe in it at your core and understand it fully uh, and, uh, and, and sort of take back, if you will, the great postmodern meta-narrative that's out there right now. Uh, that conservatives are evil and we want to impose our views on everyone else. We are classic liberals. We want to have an open debate. Uh, uh, we want to let people as individuals express themselves and be free. But that's not really what the postmodern left is promising. They're promising a new authoritarian regime uh, where the new ideology is going to be administered by the state through the coercion of law. And there's not going to be any room for a classic liberal the name of the book is The Closing of the Liberal Mind, and we've been speaking with its author, Kim Holmes. Kim, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.